Sacred Truths with Emmy Graham. In Kundalini Yoga, there is something called a subtle body that is closely connected to the soul. When strong, it gives us mastery, calmness, subtlety. When we express ourselves subtly, when we are refined, we connect to our authenticity, our soul's purpose. Sacred Truths examines this drive to express one's truth authentically. How do people connect and live by the guidance of their subtle body? Sacred Truths, first-person accounts of finding meaning in life. This is Emmy Graham. maybe even five actors who came out to themselves in the process and came out as um, LGBTQ as their identity in the performance and, and went on to be activists and before had really had a hard time coming to terms with their own orientation. And when they stepped into the power of performing and identifying in front of 1400 people, it changed their lives. And, uh, you know, a couple of times they would ask me, I, I don't know if I can do this, or they would say, what do you think I should do? And I said, it's got to come from you. You've got to be the one to decide to do this or not. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with deciding not to do it. It's completely up to you. And invariably, I think they would they came and came to me and said, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to, to come out to the school and to myself. And whew, nothing quite like that. Others, just in terms of their race and their experiences with their various identities, finding power in them, finding their truth and being able to announce and speak that truth. There's really nothing like that. My guest today is Ken Hornbeck, whose career as a stage actor and director spans over 30 years where he has worked both regionally and in New York City. In 1986, he started his own theater company called the Eclectic Theater Company, based in New York City, where he created an AIDS education show geared for teenagers, and which became his introduction to theater for social change. In 1989, he met Dr. Sidel Berlin, the founder and executive director of Star Theater, a program affiliated with Mount Sinai Hospital's Adolescent Health Center, and because of his work, was asked to serve as artistic director there. This began a long collaborative relationship, and the two of them worked with high school students, junior high and elementary students, creating age-appropriate ensemble pieces around the subject of teenage sex education in the New York City area. Their program was so successful that they worked internationally as theater trainers for the United Nations. Upon moving to Atlanta, Ken continued to devote his time to theater for social change while working at Emory University, using theater to address complicated diversity issues on campus, including race, sexual orientation, and gender identification. He is currently an adjunct faculty member at Emory, where he teaches courses in human health through the Applied Arts. Ken can be contacted at KDH1956 
1-800-273-8213 at gmail.com. I spoke to him at his home in Atlanta, Georgia, via Zoom in 2020. Welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Ken, you've had such a very full theatrical career spanning over 30 years. You were a stage actor and a director, and you worked regionally and in New York. Tell me, how did it all begin for you? When did you know (laughs) that you wanted to be an actor? And when was it you were first drawn to theater? Probably, I'd have to say, (laughs) it's sort of a stereotypic story, but it's just the elementary school story of being in school plays and really feeling kind of like in my element, as it were. Did lots of plays in my elementary school in Southern California. Pretty much every year you did at least one, sometimes two plays. And, you know, they ranged from our sad little fifth grade version of Hamlet to, um, or Macbeth, I'm sorry, Macbeth, to um, a really a, a full out version in sixth grade of The Emperor's New Clothes set in um, China with <laughs> with full makeup and little outfits. And I got to be one of the tailors and it was all pantomimed, you know, with the, the fabric that we were going to use to dress the king and uh, the emperor. And, you know, just every chance I got, I was in one of the plays and hoping for the lead or a, a, a big part. Um, and I, yes. the bug, you know, the bug bit me early, but I really think you know, thinking about it, it's probably the fact that it was really the first art form that I ever was really exposed to, quite honestly. I think it was less about the fact that it was acting or drama than it was just about being creative and, and being in some kind of art. So I wouldn't exactly say that I had the same level of passion as people who go on to to really, really make it their life work until they die. So I was passionate about being an actor in a way, um, enough to pursue it. But many people will say, well, if there's anything else in your life that you can do, do that because, because it's such an insane business. And I will say that I, I have found it to be an insane business. And I've just been so interested in so many other things in my life, which is, I suppose, why I did so many other things, along with with working as an actor, mm-hmm. which I guess we'll talk about as we go along here. And you told me the story when you were in Rome, uh, excuse me, you were in West Side Story and you were killed and your little sister burst out in tears because <laughs> she thought you really were killed. Not only did she burst out in tears, she screamed. <laughs> 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 the whole audience was was horrified. My brother's dead. <laughs> to her, it was very real. Very real. That's wonderful. Aww. I was going to ask you, how does acting fulfill you? I mean, it seems like you're drawn to many different forms of art, but let's focus on acting. How does it fulfill you when once you became an adult? I think because it involves so much of the whole person. Not only does it take mental work in terms of um, filling out a backstory and figuring out who somebody is and why they why they behave the way they do. And of course, you can't ever really answer all those questions. But I love the idea of inventing, creating, figuring out somebody's history. That can be as rich and as deep as you want it to be. 
and uh, write, writing journals and diaries and doing other forms of research and researching the time period and what's going on and letting that impact your your backstory and your work. And then the physical work, as well as the collaboration with the director and the other actors and the fact that there's also hopefully uh, a full production that it involves the other forms of art. I did quite a bit of work in musical theater too. So that whole element, that whole piece, it's just such a collaborative art form and you're in it with a team and you create this wonderful event for the audience and that completes the circle. It's, it's never really done until the audience comes in and, and gives you what they give you. So I think all of those things are just thrilling. Specific performances I was part of that you throw, to, you throw together in 10 or 11 days and there it is. I did a production of Sweeney Todd one time in Rhode Island and we did it. We put it together in, in absolutely 10 days and from start to finish. And I remember being in the opening number and just, just weeping, not supposed to be, I was not supposed to be crying, but, but I was just because, because it was it's such, such a thrill. It's such a thrill and nothing, nothing quite like it. So I, you know, the, those are the sort of the things that you hope a production will be. It often doesn't turn out to be quite that exciting or thrilling, but when it does, there's nothing compares quite to it. Yeah. You know? And theater forces you to be right in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, otherwise it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's fast forward now. Around 1986, you're living in New York City as an actor. And in 1986, you founded and directed your own theater company called the Eclectic Theater Company in New York City. Right. And coincidentally, right. at that same time, an epidemic which we know to be caused by HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, was causing mm -hmm. what we now know as the AIDS epidemic, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. This was reaching global proportions at that time. And there were at that time over 31,000 AIDS cases identified in the United States that year. By 1989, this number was 100,000. What you did is so fascinating. Through your theater company, you created an AIDS education show for teenagers. And this was your initiation into theater for social justice or social change. Tell us how this came about. I had been living in Dallas, Texas for the early 80s, late 70s and early 80s, doing um, professional theater work, feeling like I needed to do something with myself right around 1984. Needed more training, I thought. I needed something. I was just getting the itch to, to leave Dallas and do more work or do something. And so I applied to Juilliard and NYU and Circle in the Square Theater School, and I got accepted to, to Circle in the Square. So that got me to New York City. And the time period you're talking about was when I had finished Circle in the Square. And there I was. The, I had been the oldest person in the school in my class at the time and left Circle in the Square and was there in New York going, and what do I do now? What do I do now? And I, one of our teachers, I think the voice teacher had said, you know, you really ought to think about being a producer because you've got that organizational brain or, you know, some kind of something. I'm, I'm not sure what kind of advice she was giving me, but it got me to thinking about starting my own company. And so 
with my roommate, Alan, my roommate, Alan, and I started thinking about how we could do some work, self-produced work. And so there are all these senior centers in New York, places you can go and perform, and they'll pay you if you come in with a show. And so we started putting together these thematic 45-minute little musical productions using songs from, from Broadway musicals. And we did a Christmas show, I think, first, and Christmas slash Hanukkah show first, and then toured them around, and I hired actors, and we just did it. And we didn't form a nonprofit right away. We just did work. And so one of our sites was the New York University Rehabilitative Medicine Center on the 13th floor at NYU Hospital. And that happened to be where a lot of AIDS patients would go. And it was it was basically a hospice because at that time, people were dying from AIDS. And so AIDS complications. And so primarily young men would be wheeled out and would watch our show. And uh, it was it was devastating. And it was also uh, hopefully uplifting for them to get a little entertainment. We felt a purpose in, in the work that we were doing. And the guy who ran that Bernie said, you know, you guys should put together a musical for teens about AIDS prevention because, you know, it's starting to reach the teen population now. And so, you know, in my naivete, I thought, oh, what a great idea. So I got together a bunch of adults, about six of us, and we worked by committee and we put together this 45 minute musical. And it was kind of a horror themed kind of takeoff about, you know, HIV attacks, kind of the city kind of deal. It was sort of like a 50s monster movie kind of takeoff thing uh, with all kinds of music. And we toured it around as best we could. We worked with the uh, health department to get our the facts that they knew in those days straight. Through that tour and through that, that work, I met um, Dr. Sadell Berlin, who had a program out of Mount Sinai Medical Center, the Adolescent Health Center. And she had a program called Star Theater. And we performed for those actors, her actors. And that started my collaboration with her. I think she liked our show, the eclectic show, and was intrigued that there were other people doing the work. And so I started working with her. And as you said, that was really the way that I got involved with theater for social change, theater for prevention, for uh, social justice. I really didn't know anything about it before. And what I learned from working with Star Theater was really how to involve youth, because we had been, you know, a bunch of adults writing this show, as I said, and what Sadell had been doing, and I learned how to do better through working with her, was involve the youth, the teenage, the teens and post-teens that were part of our company in creating the, the script. And in some cases, the lyrics and the music and everything. And that was when it was most effective, was when you, you get theater by teens, for teens. It started about an eight-year period of time, eight and a half years working with Star Theater as the artistic director, uh, before I moved here to Atlanta. so mm-hmm. And this is really fascinating. Sidel was working through Mount Sinai Hospital's Adolescent Health Center. Her star theater was affiliated mm-hmm. with that, correct? But yes, it was a program of the Adolescent Health Center. It was basically the, the prevention arm of the Adolescent Health Center, AIDS prevention arm. And you were and with her for the- eight years, and you essentially were producing these shows with and for the teenage population. And I, I think you just answered the question, but this was extremely important public health information that you were distributing to a population that needed to hear it. And I find this interesting because I do have a public health background. And ordinarily, 
material is presented in a classroom or a lecture format, you know, for that age group. Mm-hmm. But using a theatrical format is so much more effective. How did that work for you? Well, it absolutely was more effective. And the thing that works with theater, not, not just educational or social justice theater, but theater in general, is we see ourselves up on the stage portrayed through the characters. And so uh, when they make certain decisions or behave in a certain way, we identify with that behavior. So you have your role modeling and all that kind of, I guess, stuff worked, in, you know, worked into the script. And so maybe the scene might be about negotiating, say, for sex. And so you have one character who's maybe putting pressure on their partner about not using a condom or something. And then you've got the other character saying, no, 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 no. And so somebody in that audience is going to identify with one or two of those characters. And when you give the audience the words to say through the characters, then they can, that, that in a sense is giving them not only permission to stand up for themselves and do what they want to do, what they feel is right for themselves. You're also showing them how to do it. And so that's, much more impactful than some old person giving them a lecture about how they should do something. Mm -hmm. It's because you're at an age where, you know, I don't want to hear it from an adult. I want to hear it from one of my own. Peer education is much more effective. And that's been proven through lots and lots of evaluation. So pretty much we were using that model, but we, we had to make it hot and sexy and current and relevant. And the music had to work. The music had to be something they could identify with. Then at the very end of, of the performance, the characters, the actors would stay in character and answer questions with a, a trained facilitator. So then they really get a chance to ask those questions that they've been dying to ask. And if you create a safe space, then they're able to ask those questions. That was the capper. And so a lot of people would watch the show and say, gosh, I thought that the Q&A at the end was was the coolest part of all of it. You know, I really got my questions answered. So it all worked out very well. Right. I'm proud of the work we did. The kids were talking to the character, right? Like, Billy, why did you say that? that, mm -hmm, Yeah. Why did you feel like it was okay to do that or to say that? And Mm -hmm. it wasn't just about um, HIV. Our show really was broad-based sexuality education. So we dealt with gender, sexual orientation, STDs, early, early sexual activity, you know, unintended pregnancy, abstinence, you know, saying, you know, waiting, um, waiting to have sex till you're ready, all sorts of topics. And you went to high schools all around New York State, is that right? New York City primarily, but yes, all around. And then we, we would go to other states as well with short tours. We started with a high school show and then we expanded to junior high and then we eventually did something that we called High Low, where we created a show for post-high school, young adult, college-age people, and also for fifth and sixth graders. Okay. So that we ended up with a full range of age-appropriate shows. My gosh. And eventually, so exciting, you and Sidel began working internationally. First of all, you were asked mm-hmm. to attend and facilitate certain parts of workshops. Is that right? And you were asked at one of those workshops to become a theater trainer for the United Nations. How did that happen? Well, we had been given a contract with the CDC at one point to do uh, replication around the country by hosting and running conferences 
where groups that were doing theater-based education would come and we would all work together and we would train them in the methodologies. We ended up getting a, a grant from the CDC, a big one. I think it was a three-year grant from the CDC to do to host conferences, run conferences regionally in the U.S. and a great big national conference or two. I can't even remember. It was a while ago. So we were doing a lot of national work while Star was still performing and working in New York City. And I had already moved here and had started my own program in Atlanta. So we were doing all that kind of work back and forth. And I'm still working with them and doing my own thing here. And then uh, someone that Sidel and I both knew from all of our, our network in New York had gotten wind of the fact that the United Nations UNFPA, which is the population fund arm of the United Nations, wanted to start doing work with all of the different youth peer agencies that are around the globe. Basically, they were establishing a network of peer education programming. And so in 2003, we got invited to first, actually, Sidel got invited and she dragged me along, fortunately, um, <laughs> you know, thank God, to develop a curriculum for these trainings, to, to train young people in how to be peer educators in various parts of the world. That was the mission. And so I think about 15 of us met in Estonia and we created this intense, wonderful curriculum. It took us about 10, 10 or 12 days to develop it. And that became the curriculum for training young people, youth leaders in the Middle East and Eastern Europe and uh, Northern Africa, all over the place, and how to be real advocates for each other, how to educate around HIV and sexually transmitted infections and all sorts of other things, homophobia, um, you name it. And that program grew over the course of 10 more years, at least. So Sadell and I became the theater trainers, and we, we also did other kinds of peer education, but primarily our job became being master trainers to teach young people and, and leaders and all that about how to really incorporate theater into their programs. That was a great, a great time, and that pretty much wound down around 2013 because the United UNFPA started taking up the refugee cause, and so a lot of the funding went into caring for refugees and navigating that. We did a lot of great work in a lot of a lot of wonderful places. I find it very compelling that even though you're trained in and have continued to perform classic American theater and musical theater, and you do it very well, I might add. Oh. You oh. have you've been so drawn to public health issues all your life, particularly the issues that concern young people and that you've found a way to use theater, to weave theater in, to get to the heart of the message. Why are these public health issues so important to you? Health in general has always been fascinating to me and important to me. And I, I guess in another life, I probably would have practiced medicine or gone into medicine. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's what unites and connects all of us. I think because it started with HIV, that's probably what it was for me. It was a, a frightening, frightening thing to be to be around when you were the age that I was. Mm -hmm. I remember the exact moment in time in Dallas when I, I read the first article about it. And I was probably about 26 years old, I guess, right at that age where it was impact, starting to impact my friends and people that I knew 
right and left were getting sick and dying. Um, I, I lost some of my very best friends to AIDS complications. When I, the idea was presented to us to do something with theater about it, like I said, I was naive in not really knowing how to do that, but being excited about trying to figure out how to do it. And mm-hmm. like I said, you know, we adults did our best and we created this, this zany kind of imaginative and interesting show to us. <laughs> but I don't know how, how well it resonated with the teenagers. We tried. Yeah. Um, some of them got it. But I went on because of that. I went, like I said, I went on and I was able to really be a part of something unique and magical and effective for a long time and then able to work on the same same idea here in Atlanta. By then I had learned a thing or two. So I think then over the course of the years, I realized, oh, it also works in bias. It also works with other kinds of, like it, it works, it, it's effective with mental health issues. It's effective with pretty much anything to put something on the stage or involve the audience, get them on the stage use improvisation, use, use role play, use whatever to open up the, the can of worms and get us talking about what's really going on mm-hmm. without, without it being drama therapy. It's a, it's, I guess, a form of drama therapy in that you're using the mirror of theater to, to unearth the truth. I still use it in my classes with Emory. I, it's still a part of my life. Let's talk about your time in Atlanta and the at the end of the 90s, you moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where you became involved at Emory University mm-hmm. and many different hats right. there. You served as director of the Issues Troop and the Sex Ed Squad, as well mm-hmm. as you led a number of diversity education activities on campus. Mm-hmm. So now you're working with the college-aged population. And I know that you worked addressing very challenging diversity issues on campus and with college-aged kids such as race, sexual orientation, gender identification. Would you just briefly explain your theatrical approach to these issues of diversity? And how does an interactive ensemble begin to even address these issues? Well, again, right around 2003, I was approached by Emory to, I already had a theater company there called Enact. I was approached by the Office of Multicultural programs and services to bring back to life a program called Issues Troop that had been apparently a part of the, the university years ago, started by Vinnie Murphy, who, who was a professor at Emory. In fact, he suggested me for the job. They wanted some way to address the racial tension that was going on not only at Emory, but all over the place, and a way to just address diversity in a creative and effective way on the campus. And I said, okay. <laughs> and they <laughs> didn't know what it was going to look like, but I, <laughs> it was going to be part of freshman orientation. We knew that. We knew that they wanted a show of some kind that they would perform. You know, we would be performing for the 1,400 freshmen at orientation in this big event. And that's all I knew. And I, I knew the time frame that we were going to have about four days to go from nothing to a show that we would be able to, to perform for these 1,400 freshmen. So a, I was probably out of my mind to think that that would be, <laughs> be something we could do, but I, I was allowed to sit in on the the auditions that year with the actors, you know, going into theater Emory, and I pulled together a cast and I got my rehearsal schedule together Friday night through 
Monday afternoon was all we had and we had to get this thing together. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know anything except it was going to come from the actors, just like everything else I've ever done. You know, we develop the work through improvisation and we hone it and we script it and we finally get it performance ready. And that's all I knew. And we've developed a process. I think even that first year of really putting everything out on the table, all the stereotypes, all the words, all the name calling. And I just kind of invented it as I went along of structure and how to develop it. And a lot of it came out of uh, spoken word. You know, we used that, we used improv improvised scenes. I was lucky enough that first year to have this phenomenal actress um, slash dancer who's also hearing impaired. And she, she wanted that to be part of her story. And she also wanted to use dance. So she did this phenomenal dance as part of the show. And, and so everything focused around identity, everybody's individual identity and what they brought to the table. And all of the microaggressions were in all of the scenes and the monologues. And it turned out to be a really, really incredible show. And so, you know, thank God. <laughs> so we were a hit. And then they ended up expanding that program a little bit. And we ended up doing spring performances for a while. And then every year they would have us come and do the freshman orientation performance. And we expanded here and there a little bit and became a group that would deal with situations as they came came up. You know, if there'd be some kind of inflammatory experience at the university or some other some other forum that needed to be addressed, we would be the, the go-to. What was the yeah, impact I, of these events on the audience and what was the impact on the actors? Can you speak to that? Yes, I can speak especially to a couple of people, especially in terms of coming out. I had at least three of three or four actors over the over all the years because I, I did that from 2003 to 2015, and I had I had at least maybe even five actors who came out to themselves in the process and came out as um, LGBTQ as their identity in the performance and, and went on to be activists and before had really had a hard time coming to terms with their own orientation. And when they stepped into the power of performing and identifying in front of 1400 people, it changed their lives. And, uh, you know, a couple of times they would ask me, I, I don't know if I can do this, or they would say, what do you think I should do? And I said, it's got to come from you. You've got to be the one to decide to do this or not. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with deciding not to do it. It's completely up to you. And invariably, I think they would, they came and came to me by Saturday, I think, and said, I'm ready to do this. Sometimes it was Sunday, but it was before mm -hmm. the show and said, I'm ready to do this. I, I'm, I'm ready to, to come out to the school and to myself. And Whew, nothing quite like that. Others, just in terms of their race and their experiences with their various identities, finding power in them, finding their truth and being able to announce and speak that truth. There's really nothing like that. That was a powerful, powerful thing to be a part of. You've shared with me that over the years, you've had people who have years later have graduated and gone on and they see you on the street and they run up to you and thank you for the experience. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that's, that right? Yeah. That's a, that's, that's lovely when that happens. Yes. But it, yes, but I'm just, it just humbles me to, to think about that happening. Yes, it does. It does happen. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, you know, I'm always just great. I'm grateful to what they bring to it. So I always sure. feel like saying, wait, you're the one, you're the one who did it. Not me. <laughs> I right. Didn't do anything. That's right. Yep. 
you were just in the doorway saying, go ahead and step through if you want. And exactly, what about the exactly. audience? Do you get any feedback from the audience members at these events? Yes, particularly Issues Troop. Since that's the last thing we talked about, we would always get such terrific feedback. Even right after the show, they would come up, you know, the audience would come up and say, finally, somebody's talking about this stuff honestly. And I saw myself up there. This was so real. I think they finally adopted the the slogan, as real as it gets, which I really like. Mm. Because my my goal was always to make it real and to make it not uh, that surface kind of macro aggression thing that, that happens. Well, it happens a lot more now, I suppose, than it did then. But most aggression that you experience is micro. It's people maybe not even intentionally being racist or intentionally being being homophobic or whatever other phobic phobics or isms. It's just something that people say. They'll say it, they'll say it off, off the cuff or they'll say, say they're not realizing that they've just offended somebody. And so initially in the improvs, the first night or so, what the actors would come up with were those more obvious ones. And I would, I, my, my job was really to have them dig deeper and go, no, 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 what's under that? You got to go deeper. We got to be more real. It's very easy to make funny little scenes about isms, but the, the real challenge is to, to, is to really deal with what's going on. And so that was all of, always our goal and combine some humor with all of it. Humor is essential. Yes. It is. It is. They won't listen to you if there's not some humor to it. Right. So <laughs> you've done some films for Emory University on issues of diversity, alcohol abuse, suicide prevention, eating disorders. These are also really under the public health umbrella using the medium of film. And you've written and directed these pieces. Is that right? Working with Emory students for the campus. We've done a few different things. We did, like you said, we did we did one series of four films that one was about substance, was about alcoholism, one was about suicide prevention or suicide and diversity. And then we had one other one. The fun part of that was I had just seen this wonderful movie called Elephant, where all of the different characters sort of interact and they it was actually sadly about a school shooting, but it's a brilliant movie. And um, you, you follow one character down a hallway and then you see the other, another character going the other opposite direction. And later you follow the character that was going down the opposite direction. So all of the characters are revealed in little bits coming from their own points of view. And you see, you go, oh, I just thought, you know, you get to know everyone. So I thought it would be kind of interesting if all of the characters in the different films all converge at a party. And so you see the suicide character at the party when you're following the story of the, the kid who's dealing with alcoholism. And so they're all kind of related and, and we showed them all on the same night. So it kind of gave it a universality. And so we filmed, mm. we filmed all of them in one weekend and it was, it was insane, but I would love to do more of that kind of work. Again, um, I'm not really a film director by any stretch, never would claim to be, but film is a powerful tool, just like, like everything else. We explore film as a useful tool for public health in the class that I teach, and the students get to make their own movies. Yeah, let's talk about your position at Emory University now. You're an adjunct there, and you have Uh created courses in human health through the applied arts, which I find so fascinating. I would have absolutely signed up for your class when I was in college. Can you explain how you bridge health? and applied arts in a college curriculum? 
Well, yes. It's a year-long course. Well, it's two semesters. In each semester, we are studying three different art forms. I team those with a study of a specific health issue. So, for example, this year, our first unit was about uh, eating disorders and nutrition and our bodies and social media and how social media portrays this perfect image of the perfect body. And usually it's maybe really thin or potentially gaunt or ultra muscular for males. And that's held up as the ideal. And so what does that do to our self-esteem and our ideas about our own body? In that unit, we have a dance workshop with uh, fabulous, the fabulous Lori Teague, who is one of the dance instructors at Emory. And she takes us through this wonderful journey over two periods where we look at our ability to express ourselves and our emotions and our feelings about our bodies. And it's fabulous. It's just wonderful. We look at diet. We look at nutrition. I have a guest come in, survivor of eating disorders, looking at uh, dance therapy, movement therapy as a tool in healing our attitudes about our own bodies and our, and our food and what we eat and how we take care of ourselves. And then we do mental, we do a mental health unit and we combine that, we team that with art therapy. And so tomorrow, actually, I have an art therapist coming in for a couple of sessions to give a practical workshop uh, with art therapy. And the students get to play with paint and play with colored pencils and learn about how art therapy helps us with things like depression and anxiety disorder and ADHD and all sorts of other things. And then the final unit is film and chronic disease. And so we look at films like Philadelphia and Still Alice in terms of endearment. And we look at HIV. We're looking at, we'll probably look at COVID-19. We're going to look at Alzheimer's and other chronic illnesses and how film can raise awareness, heal us, help us deal with things. And that's when the students get to pick a, they pick a disease and they work in teams and they create their own short films about those diseases. So that's the way this particular class works. I know it's fun. It's really fun, fun. but it's all on Zoom. It's all on Zoom. I know. (laughs) I don't know. It's going all right, but it's a different world. It's a different world. That's right. Like our conversation is on Zoom. It is. It is. I just want to ask you about kids, Ken. I know that you have worked in theater camps. You know, small children theater camps. Six years. As a as a theatrical director. And Mm -hmm. why is it that theater is important for children? Oh, gosh. Well, team building, obviously, collaborating, getting something done as a team is important. That comes up first for me because I see that happen and I see them joyously coming together at the end and being so happy that they as a group were able to pull something off that was magical. Um, And I think that's important. I think that's important. Sports does that too, but I think there's something Sports can't do everything. And I think it's wonderful for the, the non-sportsy kids or the sportsy and, and creative kids, the theatery kids to have something that they can be proud of. It's also all about the imagination and creativity and talent and being able to, to get up and be someone else, be a different temperament, be a different age, be a different person from who you are, different gender, a different everything. It's also just fun. I think it I think there's there's nothing like drama, you know, drama workshop 
play practice, all that stuff. <laughs> they're also learning. They're learning lines. They're learning music. They're learning dance steps. It helps the rest of the brain. It, it you know, there's there's more research about that, that, you know, working on that one side of the brain, the artsy side of the brain, the creative part of the brain helps the entire brain um, and helps development. Yes. And all those sorts of things. So on many, many levels, it's important to to have play practice. <laughs> yes. And there's something about ensemble work, which can be really very healing to the mm-hmm. nervous system. You're being seen and you're being yes, heard. Exactly. Um, for any kid who might have some troubles at home or what have you, it can be very healing and nurturing to be part of an ensemble group like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It truly can. It truly can. On your resume, it says you can do accents. Would you do an accent for me? Oh, for God's sake. Scottish. <laughs> we all want to hear Scottish. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> I'll give you a line from, from Brigadoon, which I was in in 10th grade, and I played Mr. Lundy, and I had a great big gray wig on. And my father said I looked like a leprechaun. Even though that's not exactly Scottish, it's more not Scottish, but <laughs> I look like a, ne- a leprechaun nevertheless. So picture sort of a chubby little leprechaun who's about five foot seven saying, Why, hello, Fiona, what a pleasant surprise. And then I told the Mr. Lundy story about Brigadoon and how everybody's got to go to sleep for a hundred years or they'll all die. They'll die. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Ken Hornbeck. It's been a pleasure. Oh, Emmy Graham. (laughs) It's been a pleasure for me too. I'm so grateful. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Sacred Truths with Emmy Graham. Music by Monpreet Carr at Monpreet Carr Music. My guest today was Ken Hornbeck. To contact Ken, please go to kdh1956.213 at gmail.com. Please visit our website at sacred-truths.com. Thank you for listening.